0: Good morning. Thank you to our worship team. Thanks, Tom. That was beautiful. I'm happy to be... My name is Cody Shepard. I'm the student pastor here at Southwoods Christian Church. It's my blessing to be able to speak with you this morning, to tell you about a few things that God has been speaking into me recently over the last year or so. And, um, and I'd like to just start off with some prayer. Dear Father, thank you that you are a good, good Father. You are a Father who loves us and and desires us, and that is an awesome thing. And Lord, this morning I pray that we are um, opened up, that we are cut to the heart, and that um, in the realization of how big and awesome and powerful you are, that um, our natural response is worship, and to respond to the things that you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a history nut. Some of you know that about me. I love history. Um, I've been on a a few, one of my favorite trips I've ever been on was uh, to Washington, D.C. Went to a few different museums that were there. Went to uh, Mount Vernon. Have any of you ever been to Mount Vernon before? It's a beautiful place, Monticello, some of those places. These houses of some of our founding fathers that they lived in. They're amazing, they're gorgeous, they're neat. But they're different than if you were to walk into my home for multiple reasons. But one of the main reasons is, is because when I walk into a museum, it's staged and curated as a representation of what life was like for them. It's no longer functional, in a sense, but it shows how something once was. However, my house is sometimes messy. A messy reality of what life is actually like. It's something that constantly needs maintained, managed, and updated. My guess is that if you were to walk into a house or a building and there was no signage up, there was uh, no people there, you would still fairly quickly realize whether this was a museum or a house, wouldn't you? Because there's just something different about it. An interesting museum, as much as I might like it, generally gives a little bit of an idea of being staged and maybe even cold to a degree. But a house is lived in and real. When I was young, I lived in Northwest Kansas for a good portion of my life for about five years, from about first grade till after fifth grade. About two weeks before I went into sixth grade, we moved up to Nebraska. And uh, if you have made a move like that before, uh, you kind of understand some of this, but during those early stages I had, you know, begun some of my development. I had made some friendships for, you know, for the first time really had some deeper friendships, had some good friends that I hung out with. Um, and we had, uh, I had started developing a little bit of my personality at that earlier stage. And then when we move, we move up to Nebraska in Ansley, this small town. It's a smaller town. I don't know anybody there and we first stepped foot into this house. This house which is a fine house, but have you ever stepped into a house and you're just it just didn't it just didn't feel like a home yet. It just felt kind of cold. It was just an empty shell. Jump forward 25 years this last year. I went back and my my parents just they bought a new house and they moved from this old house that we had I had moved into when I was going into 6th grade. And they move, were moving to another house, now. I was helping them move. And it's amazing how 25 years later it was a totally different experience. You know, you look on the walls and you see the little, literally there's marks of me into that house. Uh, things that I have left, blood, sweat, and tears that I helped out with on different projects around there. There's markings that are etched of, of you know, growth, where, where, you know, how big I was at different size, uh, sizes and stuff. And it's just amazing, I learned something very important, that what makes a home is not what it's made from, but what it's filled with. I don't know if you realize this, but God has had a few homes over the years. Um, he Don't get me wrong, I understand God is in all places at the same time. He's omnipresent, but I know that. But what he, what, that doesn't mean that He hasn't decided to make His presence dwell in a few places over the history. By purpose this message is not going to be a three-point message. It's going to be one thought, one singular thought with a whole bunch of stuff kind of it. I'm going to go through a lot of history and stuff like that. But the thing is, is I don't want to lose you today. I don't want to lose you in going through some of these different things. So, I'm just going to come right out and give you my, my point. I want you to give your point of focus here. And it's this, where is God's dwelling place? And how does that affect and impact my worship? Let me say that again. What is God, where is God's dwelling place? And how does that impact and affect my worship? In fact, I'm going to go even farther and and tell you what I'm de- how I'm defining worship here. It's an overwhelming reverence for God so far as it affects our habits, our lives, and our actions. In the Old Testament, there's a man named Jacob and there's a famine that happens in Israel. And due to his son being in Egypt and being uh, a person who's now high in the government, he comes down there. He didn't know it at the time, but he, God leads him and his, his whole family down to Egypt. And they, they end up being there, his family and their descendants, for 430 years. As God blesses them in number, but they are slaves. But then God sends Moses. Moses comes in and leads the people out of Egypt. But it's such a, um, an integral part, it's such a uh, very special part of the history of Israel, and, and their understanding of who God is, that when God delivered His people from Egypt, it was such a faith-building and worship-defining experience that we see plenty, a lot of festivals that happen, and feasts that come out of this. The first one here we see is, is Passover. Many of you have heard of Passover before. This is uh, the last of the, the plagues that, that was on Egypt uh, to convince Pharaoh to let his people, the Israelites, go. Uh, th- this plague was on the, the, the firstborn, all, all the firstborn males. And uh, not only just of the families of the humans, it's of the livestock as well. The only way that someone was uh, the firstborn was not killed off was if there was the blood of a lamb on the doorframe. So th- in other words, the death angel would pass over this house and go to another house, or another herd, I guess, in a sense too. Um, so we see that, and it's this amazing thing in the New Testament, this is the same uh, symbolic day. This is when Jesus went upon a cross. He was illegally tried and crucified. The next day, the Israelites. Uh, in fact, Pharaoh calls uh, Moses in the middle of the night. He's not even going to wait till the morning. He's like, "Get your people out of here. I want. I'm ready for you guys to go." And so, it's such a hurried experience that there's actually a feast the next day, the feast of the unleavened bread, because the Israelites didn't even have time to leaven their bread. And Pharaoh's like, "Get out of here!" And so, the Israelites pack up really quick, even along with a lot of the Egyptian stuff. And they go and head towards the wilderness. And if you imagine this, they've been here in, in e- Egypt for 430 years. They don't know where they are going. But once again as they step out, God meets them there on this day. God shows Himself in a cloud, which I, I don't know, I imagine to be like a tornado or something. It's like this wind that, that, is, uh, that is present there. Uh, and, and at night it's fire. So, a cloud during the day, and fire by night. In fact, let me read this in Exodus 13.21, it says, The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and He provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. Three days after Passover, the Israelites would celebrate uh, another feast. It was called the Feast of the First Fruits. This was a three-day ritual that would happen uh, when they would bless the beginning of the harvest, um, and so there was a token blessing or a token, uh, yeah, blessing of the first budding grain crop. That was almost a tongue twister right there. But what would happen is, is a farmer would grab barley, which was the first of the crops that would come up, and he would take three days preparing it, and then would take it along with this prepared offering, and would. Um, would take it to the priest along with uh, wine, as well as um, wine as well as a lamb, and this would this would symbolize this this feast. And some very important things historically happened in the Israelite tradition that would happen on this day. It said that this is the day that Noah's ark came to land on a rock after the flood. This is also the day here. In this storyline, where the Israelites went through the Red Sea to go to the other side, this is the day that the manna, when they once again later, 40 years later, and they're going through once again some water, and this is the day when they set foot on the land of the promised land and they eat of it for the first time, and the manna stops. Some very important historical things happen. Also, one other thing that is said to happen on this day as well is Esther goes before the king. And, uh, and this, was, this is later, and this there uh, it's um, Persia at the time. But Esther is there, and people are going to try killing off her Israelite people. And uh, so, she goes before the king, which is worthy of death. But instead, she receives a reprieve, not only for her, but also for her people as well. And in the New Testament, on this day, Jesus rose from the dead. This Feast of First Fruits also kicks off a 50-day countdown to the end of the harvest where the Israelites would celebrate something called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, which is a very, very big feast. And traditionally the law was also given to Moses on this this day on on Mount Sinai. But also we see on this day God sets up His first dwelling place. There's a tabernacle is the first place. It was a mobile tent. Okay, now, for anybody younger than 25, let me explain that. When I say mobile, I'm not just talking about a phone, Okay. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, for anybody younger than 25, that there was a point where phones actually were on the wall. And some of you guys remember this? I mean, this is crazy. I remember this. I'm old enough to remember this. And if you wanted a private conversation, you had to be lucky enough that there was a door close that you could kind of, you know, shimmy your way in, shut the door with that cord underneath. (laughs) Have any of you ever gotten tangled in it? Like, you just, like, you weren't expecting, you were talking, and all of a sudden you're tangled, and then you have to get untangled. Now, we're talking about mobile, more than just a phone, something that, that they would take with them. As God would, as they would be going, God would be leading them. He would stop And wherever He would stop, the priests would set up this, this tabernacle right in the middle of camp. Everybody else, all the Israelites would set up their camp around the tent, around the tabernacle. And this place was set up for worship. It was a place where the Israelites would come and be able to worship God. In Exodus 40 it says this, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey, following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. So once again we see here the presence of the Lord here, and what do we see? We see a cloud, and we see fire. After 40 years the Israelites reach the Promised Land, and they're uh, set to conquer it. And 430 years later, God calls Solomon to build a permanent structure called a temple. A temple which would once again be used as the residence of the most holy God. Showing how Holy, valuable, and righteous He is. And at the dedication of the temple, after Solomon prayed, we see once again fire flashes down from Heaven, and burns up the burnt offerings, and sacrifices, and the presence of the Lord fills His temple. I can only imagine what this would have been like, this, this sight. But we do know that immediately what happens is people are cut to the heart. And this is what would happen to me. If I saw all of a sudden fire coming down from Heaven, it would be that sense of fear wouldn't it the sense of awesome fear of amazing of like wow this is god this is amazing and it says here's what happens in second chronicles 7 is the, the people were all cut to the heart and immediately what happened was worship they they said together he is good his love endures forever in 1 Kings 8, 10-11, it talks about the cloud, filling, uh, the cloud of the Lord filling the Holy of Holies when the Ark of the Covenant comes in and rests in, in the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God's presence was to be. In Ezekiel 10.3, Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple in Jerusalem and he sees the cloud of God's presence filling the inner court of the temple. Within these two structures... We see God showed His power and His presence and His holiness. Do you remember me talking about some of these feasts that we've went through? First off was Passover, and that's where uh, the, they passed over. Uh, there was not death, but the blood of the lamb allowed the Israelites to be passed over. Then three days later, we saw the feast of the first fruits, where uh, some, in the New Testament Jesus was raised from the dead. He was the first fruit from God as a sacrifice on our behalf. But then I mentioned that there was another one that was take, took place 50, 50 days later called the Feast of the First Fruits, called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. This feast was thanking God for the harvest. The harvest had been grown, and was ready for reaping, and was a celebration of all that God had provided. Let me read something out of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 16 here, talking about this, this festival. It says, Count off seven weeks from when you first begin to cut the grain at the time of harvest. Then celebrate the festival of harvest to honor the Lord your God. Bring Him a voluntary offering in proportion to the blessing you have received from Him. This is a time to celebrate before the Lord your God at the designated place of worship he will choose for his name to be honored. Now, you notice there is talking about the designated place of worship for uh, that he is to be honored. Celebrate with your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites from your towns, and the foreigners, orphans and widows who live among you. And what would happen is offerings were uh, given as a wave offering. And symbols were to be wa- uh, waved upwards, downwards into the four corners of the earth. And this was to symbolize God's goodness and provisions throughout the whole world. Not just there in Israel, but to the whole world. Jews from all over the world would come to, to Jerusalem and would celebrate this. Most of us don't know this by Shavuot, or by Feast of Weeks. Most of us know it by the Greek name called Pentecost, meaning 50th day. It is on this day that God began to spread the provision of the good news throughout the whole world. And I want to show you uh, a little bit, uh, let's read scripture here because I think you're going to recognize a couple symbols that we see once again. When the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind, you see that wind again? Came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That's what I say happened to my hair. I just had the presence <laughs> of God right there. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This symbolizes that God is setting up a new residence. It's no longer in a tabernacle. It's no longer in a te- in a temple. But we do see His presence. We see the the cloud, we see the wind, and we see fire. These were always meant to symbolize God's presence in His tabernacle and in His temple. However, God is now setting up a new residence, a new dwelling place in His people. He was in dwelling, or dwelling in His people. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit would be with people, but worship would happen when they went to the tabernacle or the temple. But here it's not the case. God is, is setting up His presence in His people. And just like within the Feast of Weeks it was not meant to be worshipped alone either. It was meant to be worshipped in community. The natural consequence we see of the, the apostles who were all together here, the natural uh, thing that happened was when they were cut to the heart, when they, the, the, God's presence was placed inside of them, they immediately began to go out in boldness. We see Peter who just a few weeks earlier was afraid to even be associated with Jesus is now boldly going out and sp- preaching the whole Gospel to everyone who is around. We see all the apostles out there as well, and they've been given supernatural ability to speak languages that they have never learned before, to get the message of God out, that this provision is not just for Israel, but it is for all people. Everybody who can hear these, these, these words that we are speaking, this is for all people. God is choosing to set up His residence in us. It's the idea that Peter here now no longer is focused on himself or what others think of him. But he is now only focused on what Jesus, on the presence of of God inside of him, wants for him. And so he speaks with boldness. It's the same idea that we see a little bit later in the book of Acts. Stephen, who goes out and speaks in boldness... And doesn't worry about what what people are going to do to him. And they lead him out of town and begin to stone him because of his truthful words about Jesus. And even as rocks are being hurled at his head, he looks up and singularly focuses on Jesus. And worships as he dies. It's an amazing thing. And just like, uh, you know, obviously it's not a coincidence that this happens on Shavuot. On Pentecost, when this was a celebration of God's provision to his people. But what God is saying is that this is a provision for all people, that God's presence is now with and in those who are called to him, those who give their lives to him. It's this amazing idea of worship. And it's this idea, for, I like to think of it as kind of like a glove. How many of us, I don't know, I, sometimes I feel like this glove that I'm not being very useful. And that can happen. Um, we rely on ourselves. We rely on our own strength. We focus on our own feelings or our own comfort. And when I get caught up into that cycle, I very easily feel disgruntled, frustrated, worthless, worn out. What God wants to say is, I want to fill you. And it doesn't mean life isn't going to be challenging, but it's this idea that when we realize what God is doing, that He wants to indwell within us, The natural thing that happens, you can't get away from this, is what the whole book of James is talking about, is that you can't just have faith, but not have any works. It's the idea that if God indwells within you, He moves you. Your whole purpose is now for His purpose. Your whole sense of worship is not... I loved what Tara said this morning. I love how we come here and sing songs. But to think that just singing songs is our only act of worship. That our, we, can, we can say, you know what, I am not, I, my, here's my gift, I enjoy music, I enjoy uh, praying, but God is not calling me to tell other people or spread the good news. I'm sorry, but that is not an option that God has given us. If we are indwelled within Him, it naturally pours out from us. We are in His service. And we see that here with the apostles. And once again, like I mentioned, we see fire, and we see cloud, we see wind. Let me break this down just a little bit more. Fire is symbolic, even today, we, we look at fire as symbolic of love, a passion of love and desire that burns within our bones and our soul. In fact, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been given a message from God to his people that he doesn't like. It's uncomfortable. And here's what it says um, in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. It says, But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak His name, His word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. That's what happens. It's, it's, this, it's this amazing that is within us that just burns, and we can't can't stop it. And and fire is a destructive and refining force. It's a force of completely repurposing one's life, burning away the self, and creating a good soil for growth. Do you know that this actually happens? I I mean, farmers and and different people will do this. They'll they'll burn off patches of of ground, uh, because the regrowth can actually be good. 1988, uh, it, Yellowstone burned, a good section of this burned down. Does anybody remember this? you remember some of this? It was a really devastating thing I remember at the time. Even as a little kid I remember, uh, it would have been nine at the time, people saying how devastating this was. But the reality is is the forest actually needs this from time to time. It's important for the undergrowth and the strength of the forest as a whole for periodically things to be burnt. In Hebrews 12.29 Scripture says that for our God is a devouring fire. It's kind of freaky, isn't it? That, that idea of that. In the NIV, it actually says consuming, a consuming fire. But here's the thing it's not just fire, it's wind. The wind we see here, the, the original uh, language is Ruach or Numa, which is the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God which gives us life. And becomes the life-giving breath that flows from our lips and actions when we have the Spirit of God inside of us. It's a very life-giving force. You know, it reminds me, I mean, when, if you see CPR, it's one of the critical things that happens if somebody is ha- having a cardiac arrest. It's to give breath. It helps give life. We see it in Genesis 2-7 when God uh, makes man. He breathes into Adam the breath of life. We also see it in Ezekiel. There is this amazing story that happens when Ezekiel comes upon this, uh, he sees this valley of dry bones, and God tells him to prophesy. And so he prophesies, and, and all these bones come together, and they're, the, you see the flesh formed around these bones. But yet there is still not life within these, this, these bodies. And so God says prophesy again, and, and, and the breath of God goes into these bodies, and there is life again is this idea, many people are zombies. we can We can be alive, but we're not really alive without the breath of God inside of us. God gives true life-giving breath into the lungs of every one of us. In fact, when you look at the word Ruach there, given in the original Hebrew, it, it refers to the wind as something that is in motion or has the power to set other things in motion as well. It's the idea of a tumbleweed. While going across western Kansas. I used to live out there, I know what that's like, going across the frontier. So when we see these two things of worship together, we see a destructive force, but at the same time we see a life-giving force. These two things happening simultaneously is what I believe is the essence of worship. It's the idea that we're, we're, we're broken down in and of ourselves, but yet God fills us up at the same time, giving us life it's the image that I think of as the burning bush, where it's burning as being fully consumed, and yet it's not being completely destroyed. When the apostles experience they, this, they immediately begin to preach. And many people hear this, and they they hear it, and they, they are cut to the heart. And their response essentially is: How now should I respond? How now should I worship? And here's what Peter says. In Acts 2, 38-39 through 39, it says, Peter responds by saying this, Repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the pneuma. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I want to tell you the story of a man named Jim Monroe. Um, yeah." He has, if you've ever heard of I Am Second videos, he has an I Am Second video. It's incredibly powerful. I encourage you to go and watch this. Jim Monroe is a professional master illusionist. Uh, this is his job, and because of that, he is a very skeptical person. A person who wrestled with God um, until um, something happened in 2008. And I'm just going to pick it up in his own words uh, here. He says, I will never forget the day in late 2008 that I began to feel significant pain in my right leg. It became so overwhelming that my wife, Ely, took me to the emergency room. A doctor told me, Mr. Monroe, I have some bad news. You have cancer, a very aggressive form of leukemia. We cannot cure you of this disease. At this time, Ely and I had been married for five years. We had a three-year-old little girl and a two-year-old little boy. I remember thinking, I need more time. There is something we would like to try, the doctor said. It's a bone marrow transplant. The problem with your body is that your white blood cells are making bad copies of bad copies. Your body is deceiving itself. It's playing a trick on itself. I had lived my whole life learning how tricks worked, but this was the best trick of all. Because these copies were so good that my body couldn't recognize them as being the wrong thing. I was thinking, my time is running out. I'm dying. The doctor explained, we need to completely destroy your cells, your blood, and your immune system. And we're hoping to find someone in the world whose DNA matches yours closely enough to grow a brand new immune system, a brand new blood system from scratch. We're going to substitute someone else's perfect blood on your behalf so that you can live again. They began the most vicious concoction of chemo, the goal of which was not just to destroy the cancer in my body, but to destroy me. It was hell. It was a slow death. I tried to be strong for Ely and our children, but I was scared. Without a perfect substitution of blood cells, my life was over. And out of 7 million people in the database on the, uh, on the, of the B- National Bone Marrow Donor Program, there was one perfect match for me, just one, a 19-year-old female. They scheduled the transplant for April 23rd. And they started using words like this. You're going to get a brand new birthday, the doctor said. You're going to be like a baby all over again. The nurses will celebrate your new birth in the hospital you get two birthdays now for the rest of your life. I had heard that terminology before. That sounds like John 3, I thought. Although John 3 is talking about spiritual birth, now I was going to be born anew physically. On April 23rd, they brought a bag of blood into my room, and everyone was hoping in that moment that my body would receive new life from that blood. That new life dripped into my chest and began to grow a brand new immune system. Today I am 100% cancer-free as a result of that perfect blood. And when they look at me, at my blood today, they don't see a 30-year-old male. They actually see a 19-year-old female. They see XX chromosomes. I rem- I'm reminded of the verse that says, It is no longer I who live, but it's someone else who lives inside of me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith. This morning, I'm just going to be bold and ask you need a blood transplant, a transfusion? Do you sit here this morning trying to live life under your own power while inside you're really dying? Are you needing the blood that will give you new life? For some of you here this morning, you've never really made that decision. You've heard it all. You've sat in the blue chairs. But my, my answer to you is the same thing that Peter said to the people who heard the message at Pentecost, repent and be baptized. It's the same spiritual process that Jim experienced physically. It's being destroyed and rebuilt. It's the same process of the wind and the fire. It's the destruction and being rebuilt. If you have not come before the Lord in repentance, with a humble heart, and been broken before Him because of your own sin... Because of the realization of the mistakes that you have made, you need to confess these things and be made new in Christ. Also, if you have not been baptized before, that is a process of the belief, it needs to happen. Paul or Peter is not very wishy washy on this. He says, Repent and be baptized. When you repent and are baptized it says in Acts that it has the power to start a tumbleweed not only in your life but in the lives of those around you as well. For some of you, you've, you've repented and you've been baptized. And let me tell you about one other thing that I've, a fascinating thing that I've learned in my studies. In Exodus 20 verse 7, many of you have heard this before. Um, it, it, we read, uh, it says, Do not take the Lord, your na- uh, the Lord your God's name in vain. Have you heard that before? And as I've done some study, I've really found that it's an incomplete um, translation, I think. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine who's a a Hebrew scholar, and he said, um, really the best way to translate that is, do not carry the Lord your God's name in vain. It's this idea that it's not just about what you speak or what you say, it's the fact that you have a banner. You now carry the name of God on you. It is not to be used in vain for your own purposes or it's not to be used in a way that does not bring glory to Him. You now carry a name. The way you carry that name shows a lot not only about yourself but it shows about the God you serve. How are you carrying the name of the Lord? If you are His dwelling place, if His residence is inside of you does your life show evidence of that? If it doesn't You need to talk to somebody. You need to rededicate your life to Christ. Last year, we went on a a, a trip, uh, the student ministry went on a trip called Destination Unknown. And the whole purpose of this was to be responsive to the Spirit of God in our lives. And you know what I learned about myself? I rarely, in everyday life, listen to the Spirit of God and what He's wanting to say to me. Why? Because it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like being the glove of God because it's it's just uncomfortable. You know, rea- the reality is is God is constantly talking to us, constantly wanting us to, to be to, to serve Him. You know, sitting next to somebody at McDonald's and realizing that maybe I you don't, know, you see the downcast look on their face, and what I want to do is just eat my burger and go, right? But instead, we were there, and and I'm gonna, I didn't tell him I was going to, but we're at McDonald's, and Paul notices some people around. He decides to just go and chat with them, and before long. He's in this deep conversation with somebody who very likely is, is, feels very, very alone. It's this being responsive to what God is calling us to do. It's this idea that I am not in control. I don't feel prepared for what might happen when I respond to the Spirit. But you know what? That's not my problem. God will provide. Just like in the desert, when I step out, when the Israelites left Egypt, God's presence showed up and He led them. That's what God wants to do in your life too. God will choose to use you anyway, even in your own inadequacies, even in your own mistakes. God will use your faithful service in spite of your shortcomings. And then in the moment of that, that only enhances our worship, realizing how big He is, and how amazing it is that He can use someone like me. True worship comes from the indwelling of God which is evidenced in our lives through what happens in every moment not just here on Sunday mornings the combination of the fire and the wind inside of us displayed in our lives is the foundation for all true worship john 4:24 says that when we worship in spirit or the presence of god or the presence of the spirit in our lives when we worship in spirit and in truth or the presence of the reality of the message of god make sure that you worship god in spirit and in truth this morning we've looked at the dwelling places of God throughout history. We've learned that God has chosen His people. We, He's chosen His dwelling place in us. But I do want to look at one other really quick thing here to complete my, my whole thought. In 1 Corinthians 3:16, it says this: "Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst?" The translation here is not like you and you and you. It's what in the South they'd say, y'all, right? I lived in Kentucky for a while. It's y'all. Or up in North, it might be you or something like that, right? Uh, it's this idea that it is not, in fact, it's actually second person plural that's mentioned here. It's not just for you. It's for you all. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells, dwells in your midst? So if God is alive and active in each of us, that we all have little flames, like my bald spot, little flames in each of us, how much more would that be if we chose to really live this out together? How much more impactful how much more would it be how much more would would it be if we chose to serve together to study together to evangelize together to give together and to truly worship together God has set up Southwood's Christian Church to be that to be a shining example in the world around us that God's presence is here in His people. Not in a building, but in His people. That His fire and His wind is inside of each of us. What a blessing it is to be able to be here this morning and say this is Southwood's Christian Church. Part of God's universal faithful church. And God dwells here. Let's pray. Father I thank You for Your willingness to dwell inside of us. But Lord, that only happens when uh, when, uh, we have a response to your message of good news. So Lord, I pray that each one of us is cut to the heart of the reality of who you are. And we allow the process to happen where we are removed of ourselves. That we die to ourselves, but we receive a a blood transfusion that gives us life that gives us purpose, that gives us breath and wind. And Lord, it is impossible for us who have received that to stay quiet about that. And Lord, help us in our own insufficiencies, in our own fears, and our own inadequacies as we do our best to put feet and hands to the words that You have given in Scripture. Lord, help us to be Your hands and feet and to trust that as we respond to the Spirit alive in us, that you will use our efforts for your purpose. Thank you so much that your presence is here this morning, and we trust that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.